This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. I'm going to read this morning Psalm 120, verses 1 through 7. Hear the Word of God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. When I speak, they are for war. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the words of this psalm. And we pray as we study the scriptures together that in your light we would see light. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Summer is typically a time for travel. People tend to be on the move, on the road, vacations and whatnot during the summer. Well, the summer, Lord willing, we're going to take a look at psalms that are about travel, about hitting the road. They're called the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, a section of the psalms that have in common the theme about pilgrimage about being on the road, ascent, because they have to do with going up, with heading to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And when you went to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. One was just uh, elevation and geography. Jerusalem was high in elevation, so more often than not, you were heading up in altitude to Jerusalem. But in 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 a deeper sense, going up to Jerusalem meant going up spiritually, because Jerusalem was the spiritual center of Israel, their spiritual home. It was there in Jerusalem that the temple was located, which symbolized and mediated God's presence with his people. Now, these psalms all begin with that, uh, that heading, a song of ascents. And there are different theories about uh, what that means and the connection, but it seems to be the consensus that the most likely meaning of that expression was that these were pilgrim psalms, either that people sang about their travels to Jerusalem for the various feasts, uh, or their longing simply to be in Jerusalem, uh, and therefore their longing for God, uh, maybe even uh, sung on the way among pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem. The words of these psalms uh, would be sung or chanted uh, as they reflected 
on what they were doing as they were hitting the road, making a road trip to Jerusalem for the different feasts like Passover that would be observed there. Well, as we look at these psalms, the first one, we have to admit, is rather dark. Now, some of you may look to travel with anticipation. You you get excited about it. Uh, Others of you, like me, have something of a hobbit-like streak and actually prefer the safety and comfort of your living room to the open road. I don't know what it is about packing, getting ready for a trip. Maybe it's this latent fear I'm going to forget something. I don't know. But I, I get this sense of anxiety, even depression. Even going to General Assembly last week, I was already missing my family and anxious about packing uh, days before it ever actually happened. Well, I don't know if that has anything to do with this psalm, but the fact is this first song of ascent starts on a rather dark note. Uh, and, and for different reasons, as we will see. It begins with the words, in my distress. It ends with the word, war. So it doesn't sound overly promising, but it is the first song of ascent, and that is where we begin. So as we look at this psalm, I want us to notice three things. First of all, the reality of discouragement in this world. Second, some of the sources or causes of that discouragement. And then third, what we do about it. So first of all, let's look at the reality of discouragement. Notice again the words, in my distress. He's not just discouraged, he's distressed. And then later in verse 5, he pronounces on himself uh, not so much judgment, although maybe there's an element of that, but just his, his, his difficult condition. Woe to me, he says. That woe can be a declaration of divine judgment, but it can also be an expression of, of distress, of, of inward pain. Woe to me. So there's the reality of discouragement. Uh, and this is a man who is, at this point anyway, unhappy. And unlike many believers today, he's actually quite open and quite honest about his situation. He acknowledges it. Not long ago, I came across an article uh, called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? It seems that all too often in the church, we don't have a place for believers who are unhappy. That doesn't seem to fit the paradigm, and it certainly doesn't seem to fit much of what we experience in worship, where so many of the songs are songs of praise, songs of celebration. Now, certainly, uh, our worship should, should, should emphasize praise of the Lord and celebration of what he's done for us in Christ. But what about, what about that believer who finds himself, who finds herself at a worship service Praising God for his goodness, praising God for his faithfulness, praising God for his mercies. And her husband just died of cancer. Or his wife just left him. Or their children have been diagnosed with leukemia. Or work is going badly. And while their lips are saying the words, the reality is their heart is in a very different place. Their heart is not celebrating. Their heart is hurting. The Psalms aren't like that. If you read through the Psalms, absolutely, there's jubilant praise and celebration of the Lord. 
But you know, if you read through the Psalms as well as I do, that there are those Psalms that lament, those Psalms that express anguish. Read Psalm 88. Wow. That's honest. And so with Psalm 120, this is a song a miserable Christian can sing. Because this comes from one who is miserable. You know, the Psalms are honest. They recognize that there are times when a plastic smile and a praise ditty just doesn't quite cut it. Sometimes we do need to pour out our honest anguish and heartache to God. And so the Psalms have that balance that sometimes our worship and corporate worship does not. Yes, the praise, yes, the celebration, but the acknowledgement that oftentimes life can be hard and life can hurt. Now, Many of the Lord's best over the years have struggled with, like the psalmist here, with finding themselves in Meshach, miserable in Meshach. Uh, Elijah was the subject of uh, one of the adult Sunday school classes after his victory over the prophets of Baal. Uh, goes into hiding. He's afraid of the queen Jezebel, and, and he just says, I wish I were dead. From, from the heights of victory to just the depths of, of depression from one chapter to the next. Uh, one notable believer uh, who often struggled with having a downcast heart, although you wouldn't know it necessarily look at his life, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher of 19th century London, Metropolitan Tabernacle. He went through a period in his life where this Psalm 120 was one of his favorites because it spoke to him. It resonated with him. He wrote a letter to his congregation. Imagine, imagine if, if I or Mike wrote you this. What, we, what would you, th- you would think of us? But this is what Spurgeon wrote to his congregation. He says, since I last preached to you, I've been brought very low. My flesh has been tortured with pain, and he suffered from physical ailments. My flesh has been tortured with pain. My spirit has been prostrate with depression. I'm as a potter's vessel when it's utterly broken, useless, and laid aside. Nights of watching and days of weeping have been mine. How's that grab you for honest? Well, that's the kind of place where the Psalms of Ascent begin. That's where this pilgrimage begins. We start with the reality of life. The reality that life can be hard. The reality that sometimes things don't go our way. Loss is real. Death is real. The reality that life in this fallen world often leaves us unsatisfied, and in this fallen world alone, ultimately leaves us unsatisfied. And that joy and satisfaction ultimately must be rooted outside ourselves and outside this world and outside of its circumstances. Now, as we go through these psalms, don't worry, it gets better, it gets much happier. But this is where we begin, because this is where these songs of ascent begin. This is where pilgrimage begins the reality of this world and the way it is. One writer puts it this way. He said, The dissatisfaction coupled with a longing for peace and truth can set us on a pilgrim path of wholeness in God. This is where it starts, with this dissatisfaction with this world the way it is. After all, if life and Meshach were so great, why would we risk the perils of the road to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem? So that's just the reality of discouragement. You know, we, people say, how are you doing? We say, fine. And that, that's a customary expression. You might say, do you really want to know? Because sometimes we are fine. Sometimes life is good. Praise God for his mercies that it's so. 
But sometimes life isn't good. We struggle, we're discouraged, things are hard, things aren't going the way we might wish. And so we need to recognize the need to be honest, certainly with one another, certainly with a close brother or sister in Christ uh, when we are discouraged. Because you certainly find that in the Psalms and you find that in Psalm 120. Well, why? What are some of the causes, some of of the reasons for discouragement that we find in this psalm? Well, we don't have to look uh, too hard to discover one that he mentions here, and that has to do with lies. Look at verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, when I first read that, I was thinking, you know, for, for me, I'm thinking, Lord, deliver me from my own lying tongue, from my own tendency to, to, to shade the truth in my favor and that kind of thing. But that's not what he's talking about. Now, certainly we should pray that. You know, James speaks a great deal about the tongue. Proverbs speaks about our own tongues and all that. But what he's concerned about with is not his own lying tongue, but the lying tongues of others, the deceitful tongue, the lying lips of others, particularly in terms of accusations toward him, particularly in terms of slander against him. So that's why he's wanting to be delivered, wanting to be protected from the lies of others. He's a victim of, of accusation and, and slander. And so certainly that's a reason to be discouraged if people are saying things about us. They ought not to be saying true or not, but especially if they're not true. It can be discouraging, and that's part of this world we live in. Uh, more broadly, we live in a world that's full of lies. It's deceptive, uh, where deception can take other forms as well. There's just the lie of sin generally. There are people who live in a state of deception about sin. The lie that life and joy and fulfillment are found in disobeying God. And of course, this was, was the serpent's instrument when he went after Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, you will not surely die. Don't be ridiculous. God, God knows when you eat, your eyes will be open, things will be good. God said you will die. Satan said you will not die. And that's the lie of this world, that disobedience brings life. And what's worse, in our own sinfulness, in our own fallen nature, even after being redeemed by Christ, there's part of us that, that wants to believe the lie. We want it to be true. That fallen aspect of us wants it to be true, that we can find life apart from submission and obedience to the God who made us, knows what's best for us. But in the end, we find ourselves miserable. Given to temptation, we come to a point where we say, you know, tricked again, deceived again. You know, we're right back where Eve was when she explained to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. But there's another aspect of lying in this world, certainly the accusations and lies of others against us, the lie of sin itself in this world, but even more broadly and more subtly, just the lie that life here will work and can work without God, apart from God. But you could, you could name it humanism, the idea that man is the measure of all things, or more to the point, I'm the measure of all things, especially as it relates to my life. But the reality is that someone may be very successful in this world, accomplished, wealthy, well-known, whatever, and yet, yet, there's, there's a core, there's a center, there's a foundation that's missing. 
You know, the book, the book of Ecclesiastes talks a great deal about that. Despite all worldly successes, there's still something about it that's empty. There's still something about it that's, that's meaningless in life. And so we even lie to ourselves that, that life here should work. We should know better, especially if you've lived for a few years. Uh, there's a reason that Murphy's laws are, and their corollaries are so popular, and they're sort of dark, but they're also true. The world is broken. The code's got a bug in it, bad bug, that shows up every day. Things break. We get sick. Friends betray. You know, there's this tendency to live with it if I just, if I just get that job, if we just get this person elected, if I just had that new eye thingy, if I could just be married, if I could just be married to someone else, if I could just be single, if, 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 if only, you know, and people get that if and they discover, no, that didn't make it work, that didn't fix my life, that didn't fix this world. And so that's the first problem. Lying lips, deceitful tongue, particularly in terms of slander against him, people who say things, but also just the nature of this world, that it's a world of deceit, whether it's the lies of sin particularly, or just the general deception that somehow in this world without God, it's going to work. We can make it work. It can be fulfilled. It can be happy. It can be satisfied. And yet, without God, that, there's that great hole in the middle of it all. But there's a second cause of his discouragement here. The first he mentions has to do with lies and deception. And notice, particularly in his case, verses 3 and 4, he recognizes uh, God's judgment against those with these deceitful tongues. And that's certainly a fact to reckon with. A sort of uh, goes before Paul in recognizing, uh, as Paul does in Romans 12, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But there's another reason, another source of his dissatisfaction here, and that's that's in the last verses, verses 5 or 6. Verse 5, the problem is, as he puts it, I sojourn in Meshach, live among the tents of Kedar. Well, what are Meshach and Kedar? Well, those are, those are places, uh, peoples. Meshach was uh, well to the northeast from Israel near the Black Sea and most modern-day Russia. Uh, Kedar uh, was a tribe in the, to the to the south in the Arabian uh, wilderness, a uh, tribe of somewhat barbaric reputation. Uh, one person paraphrased verse five as "I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages," uh, and that that's part of it. Part of the problem is the difference between himself and who he is, and those people who are around him. He loves peace; uh, they hate peace. Verse 6, when he tries to speak up for peace, they want to go to war. Verse 7, and it is hard living among people whose desires and whose values and whose priorities are so different from yours as a Christian. Maybe it's a roommate. That can be hard. It's so close. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a classmate. Maybe it's a neighbor. And they're just so different. And by God's grace, you're different from them. You want to live in ways that honor Christ, but they're going in the opposite direction and opposed to it and maybe opposed to you. But you know, the biggest problem here is not the people. It's the distance. Because both of those are a long way from 
Jerusalem. Now, he can't be in two places. They're very different from each other. Meshach and Kedar are very different places. So it, it tells us he's not speaking so much literally here because he's not in both, certainly not at the same time. But he's simply reflecting the fact that God's people were scattered and what it's like to be so far from Jerusalem, so far away from their spiritual home. And he's miserable there. It's, it's the distance far from Jerusalem, which in the psalmist's terms, means to be far away from God and from his presence. He doesn't want to be in Meshach. He wants to be with God. He doesn't want to be around the people of Kedar. He wants to be among the people of God. So in short, pilgrimage begins with this longing, this longing for something better, this longing for something real, for something that is pure and right. Setting out on pilgrimage is impelled by a sense of dissatisfaction, even distress with this fallen and sinful world and what it has to offer. So it begins with this deep weariness with deception, with lies, with godlessness. And maybe this is where you are today. To some degree, even as Christians, it'll always feel that way in this world. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, but maybe you're starting to feel some of the same things about life in this world that he's writing of here in Psalm 120. Um, Even as a believer, uh, we're not yet home. We're on our pilgrimage right now, so we feel this. But sometimes it can become even more intense if you started listening to the world a little bit, kind of wandered off the pilgrimage path toward Jerusalem and are kind of heading off in different directions. Sometimes God may allow us to spend a little time in Meshach, dwell among the tents of Kedar, just to see what things look like. From there, it's a pretty bleak view. Thought it would be nice, but it turns out to be not so much. But either way, count it the mercies of God that you are, if you are increasingly miserable in this world of deception, in this world of lies, and lands far from God, far from His people. That is God's grace if you are miserable there and not at home there. So what do we do about it? We've looked at the reality of his discouragement, some of the causes of it, and some of the same things that we experience in a little different way, but the same principles at work. But what to do about it? What do you do when you're miserable in Meshach? Well, what he does is pretty simple. It's in verse 1. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord. Two things here. One, he was honest. In my distress. Again, woe to me. He's very upfront and says, I'm pretty miserable here where I am. It's not going well for me. He's miserable. He acknowledges it to us. He acknowledges it to himself. But there's a second thing that he does here, more of a a concrete action. He prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Specifically, verse 2, he tells us he prayed for deliverance. From these things, deliverance from those who were accusing him or slandering him. You see, in dealing with life, sometimes we need to stop looking around at the distressing circumstances and look upward. Sometimes we think to do everything except to do what ought to be the first thing, and that is to pray. That is in our distress to call on the Lord. And notice what happened when he did it. He answered me. And 
Well, he doesn't tell us what happened. He just said he answered me. What did he say? We don't know. He didn't say. He said, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me. He just tells us God answered him. Barbara shared with me some time ago, we were talking, uh, shared with me just some thoughts, some insights that she had gleaned in her studies in the Gospel of John uh, that God had given to her uh, that had to do with the fact that often we tend to uh, limit God, not in reality, but in our own thinking, by, by thinking that he can only work in certain ways according to our preconceived ideas of what those ways must be. Uh, and this insight came to her several places, particularly John 5, with the man who was paralyzed and uh, would, would go to the pool there in Siloam, and, and he'd want to be put into the pool, and the water was stirred up. Apparently, whoever was first in was supposed to be healed, and maybe he did receive healing or benefit from it. And for 38 years... He'd been trying to get into that pool first to receive the benefit of the pool. And there he is in his paralysis, and he's there beside the pool. And Jesus comes up to him, and Jesus says to him, by the way, John notes Jesus knew he had been there a long time. Jesus knew that. And Jesus says to the man, do you want to be healed? Now, the first reaction may be, what kind of question is that do you want to be healed but it was a very important question jesus was not just speaking idly to the man as we see from his response what do you think he would say you think he would say yes that's not what he said what the man said to jesus was Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. At one time, the man may have been thinking about the goal, which was healing. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. What does he give Jesus? An answer, no. He gives him a process that in his mind is how it has to happen. What he wanted was to get in the pool. At one time, he wanted to be healed, and he still wanted to be healed. But you see, for him, what had to happen was not being healed. It had, it had to do with getting into the pool. That's the way it would happen. That's how it would work. But you see, Jesus didn't care about the man's process, this preconceived idea of how this had to happen. Jesus wasn't concerned with that at all. He wasn't limited by this man's ideas of how it had to happen. So Jesus simply says to the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Don't limit your hope in what God can do by the process you think you must use. God is not bound to your preconceived ideas of how things have to happen. And we get back to Psalm 120 with that. He says, I cried to the Lord. He just says he answered me. As God has promised to do. He doesn't tell us what he did doesn't tell us how deliverance came, or even if it came. He simply says, God answered me. His prayer was not in vain. You see, God's not bound to our process. Which of us would have thought of crucifixion as a means to salvation? 
And yet that's how God worked. And by the way, notice the man in John waited for 38 years. God may not only work outside your preconceived process of how he must work, he also may well work well outside your time frame. 38 years was a long time to put up with frustration and the agony of paralysis. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. He may answer you in a way totally different from what you were expecting. Jeff Thibodeau is a part of our church. Jeff lives in Meshach. He's lived there for quite some time. For Jeff Thibodeau uh, and for Luann, who lives there with him, Meshach is progressing multiple sclerosis, MS. Meshach is living in a nursing home surrounded by people with broken bodies and broken minds. Uh, Friday, I went to see Jeff uh, in Winder after his first night in a nursing home. Jeff doesn't want to be there, which is certainly understandable. Who would want to be there? But you know, as we were talking uh, and as we were listening to him, I kept coming back to this because thinking about Psalm 120 this past week, and we, he and I talked about that and talked about how, and I encouraged him to go back and read this psalm. Because like the writer of Psalm 120, he's living in Meshach and he does not want to be there. He's miserable. And Luann is miserable in Meshach. And Jeff said, could use him as an illustration of that. I didn't ask him for that. He volunteered that. Jeff Thibodeau lives in Meshach. It's not a place he wants to be. But it is where he is right now and where this next stage of his pilgrimage begins. But while it may be more obvious in Jeff's case, it's true of every one of us. All of us, as long as we are in this fallen world, live in Meshach. We dwell among the tents of Kedar. All of us, to one degree or another, and certainly absolutely apart from Christ, are miserable in Meshach. But that's a good thing, particularly as God's people. We're not supposed to be happy in Meshach because being there drives us to pray, because being there impels us to set out on this pilgrimage to seek the Lord, to know the Lord, to grow closer to the Lord through avenues and experiences and ways and trails we never would have chosen for ourselves but that God leads us in. You see, he uses our misery, he uses our dissatisfaction here to bring us to that place where we would say with Asaph, the, the author of Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that in this fallen world, certainly in our sin, certainly under the deception of lies, Lord, in your mercy, make us miserable. Make us miserable until by your grace we're able to repent. We're able to pursue you. We're able to set out on that path that you have for us seek you, uh, Lord, to seek cleansing in Christ, to seek to walk with you. 
Father, remind us uh, that we are exiles here, that even as your people, even as those uh, who are following you, uh, Lord, we're still on that pilgrim path, headed for that new Jerusalem, for that time when we will be in our home. And we look forward to that. But Lord, in the meanwhile, keep us faithful. Father, insofar as we wander from you, insofar as we are tempted by sin, make us miserable in Meshach and unhappy living among the tents of Kedar, that we would pursue you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.